Being a school principal might just be the most interrupted job on the planet. Every celebration, classroom party, and great lesson in the school, you're invited. Every difficult conversation with a parent whose child is not behaving or with a teacher who's chronically late to work, you're there too. And every emergency in the building with 500, 1,000, 2,000 people in it, it's your emergency. And on top of all that, you are responsible every day for the safety of the world's most precious asset, our children. How do they do it? We're here to find out, here in the principal's office. Hello and welcome to the Principal's Office Podcast. This is Jeff Gorski, your host from Leaders Building Leaders, where we help charter schools solve problems. You know, one of the problems that we see, maybe the most frequent problem that we see in charter schools is a lack of resources to do the things that you aim to do in your charter. We like to think of ourselves as an organization that can help you get the tools and the resources you need for success. Our podcast guest this week, Megan Agresto from Water's Edge Village School, is no stranger to solving this puzzle of resources. Water's Edge Village School is located in the small town of Kerala, North Carolina. It's the last town north on the Outer Banks with only, get this, 32 students in their school this year. They have still found a way to stay true to their mission, provide a valuable school of choice to their community. So valuable, in fact, that they're considering expanding from their K-8 original charter school on all the way up through high school. Megan, by day, is the lighthouse keeper at the Kerala Lighthouse, the Currituck County Lighthouse. And by night, well, actually, also by day, <laughs> is the board chair at this small school, which has to tap all the resources they possibly can to give a quality educational experience to their students. During this podcast, you'll hear their story of struggles and the creative solutions they've found in order to provide their students with a learning environment that they always hope for. And I think it might be the last time <laughs> that you say in your school of 200 or 300 or 400 that you just can't make it work with less than the number of kids that you have. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, this eye-opening conversation with Megan Agresto from Waters Edge Village School in Kerala, North Carolina. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So you have one of the more unique origin stories in all of charter schools that I've heard. Right. Um, and I could start by saying we are sitting in front of the Currituck Beach Lighthouse in the northern most accessible region uh, of the Outer Banks. And because we are here in this area is why this school was essentially born. Will you tell us about the place where we are right now? Yes, yeah, so we're sitting in what used to be a storehouse with a privy attached uh, for the lighthouse keepers of the Kirtek Beach Lighthouse. There were three of them. Interestingly enough, I have seen in the National Archives that these lighthouse keepers in 1895 approached the federal government and said, we want a schoolhouse. And they are granted permission by the federal government to have a schoolhouse. I don't have the paperwork. All I have is the sheet of paper that says there's a letter about it. I don't have the letter or the request, but all I know is request was granted. I can see it on the paperwork. And when I go back to look at the minutes of the Currituck County School Board, I can see that by 1903, they have nominated 
the three lighthouse keepers as the school committee for this school, right? So I think they, there's a lot of schools up and down the beach. Remember or know that Currituck County used to include Kitty Hawk. When the Wright brothers made their flight, they made it in Currituck County and Duck. But in 1920, because of political reasons, they decided to let Dare County annex Duck and Kitty Hawk, which essentially cut Kerala off from land access without going through Virginia from the rest of the county. So, but even before that happens in 1920, there are a lot of schools up and down the beach associated with life-saving stations and schoolhouse, excuse me, and lighthouses. And it looks to me like they just put who's ever in charge of the lighthouse also to sort of be like a mini school board almost. They have three people who are part of every school committee. And there are lots of kids in the early 1900s in the Atlantic region. I can't remember this. In the Atlantic region, there are 147 kids. In the popular, we're actually, even at that time, associated with Poplar Branch region, which is on the mainland. And again, there are way more than the 32 kids at our school currently. So there are lots of kids here until, well, through World War II. In 1937, they get, they electric, they, excuse me, 1933, they electrify the lighthouse. In 1937, they automate it. So when you electrify it, you still need somebody to come flip the switch. By 37, you've got a photo sensor up there. So when it gets dark, the light comes on. No more carrying oil with fire to the top. No more, no more of that. So and in 1915, the Coast Guard is created through Life Saving Station and another organization. But so you're modernizing. And as you modernize these very ends of the earth, there's less reason for people to be out here. So by 1950, I think it's the 1958 1959 school year, but it might be the 1957-1958 school year that they allocate no money to the Kerala school. There's a newspaper article, which we have on our website, which talks about our school in 1955 and how very few kids, I can't remember, five or seven are there then. And a few years later, there are even fewer kids. Yeah, well, no, there were still a few, but they are trying to figure out, are we going to pay for a vehicle? Are we going to put them on a boat? They're already at the same problems that we were at decades later, which is what to do with the geographically isolated kids. And in the decades that pass, they come up with a variety of solutions, which is send a vehicle and let them go to Dare County schools. Great, organize it with Dare County, no problem. But as regulation on schools grow, they have to send a full-size bus. So schools don't have a lot of money for this transportation. And so they're going to send us the same, no more like we're going to pay a parent to carpool. You know, here's your gas money, take the boat over. No, they stop trusting the individual citizen to transport kids. It has to be regulated. Big school bus. So how many big school buses does Currituck County actually own? So they end up sending the bus. By the time I'm here in 2005, the bus is already picking up all the Kerala kids driving 45 minutes to the mainland and then starting their route where those kids already were complaining. The parents still today complain, I will not put my kid on the bus because it's an hour and a half from the southern tip. For the people who don't know it, Currituck County is a very, very long, skinny county. I always feel for the public servants of Currituck County because it's hard to manage. A lot of ground to cover. A lot of ground to cover. 
and you can't drive east and west to cover it. It's all north and south. And, down. and plus, you have students that are not just here in Kerala, but beyond where the road ends. Good point. So the school bus is never going to drive up the beach, right? So to start their day out, the kids who live what we call the, four, the four-wheel drive area have to drive down the beach as long as the weather... Weather permitting, we'll say. And the tide permitting. And the tide permitting and the wind permitting, right? Sure. So all of those things permitting, then you get to the hard top. Then you catch the bus for usually two and a half hours on the way there. If it got there early, you weren't even allowed off the bus. When we started here, and when I started looking to send my five-year-old, it was 2008, 2009, you couldn't, the kid wasn't allowed, if they got there early, then you had to sit on the bus for half an hour. It was like... Every, and everyone agreed. You know, uh, charter schools can be polarizing, but no one thought, no one who puts kids first thought that is good for children. So the total transit time for a student who lives here in Kerala, if they were going to attend the school they're districted for, would be what? One way. So in the morning, minimum two and a half hours from getting on the bus to arriving at school. So five hours... No, coming the- home for some reason, for whatever reason, was easier, always. Okay. I don't know if parents were putting their kids on the bus in the morning, but picking up in the afternoon, or whether after-school activities... Take some kids out take. of the So picture. the way home tended to be more direct. So really, you're only looking at four to four and a half hours only. on the bus a day, <laughs> times five days a yeah. week. You're more than... 20 hours, right? You're more than 20 hours right. on the bus alone. For some parents of older kids who don't get car sick, you need a lot of qualifiers on this, that wasn't the end of the earth. They didn't need childcare and homework could get done. You had the right personality kid and the right inner ear kid. And that can work yeah. for some parents. And probably some amazing bus drivers too. <laughs> oh, I am sure. Oh, but so when we started, when, I, when my older child arrived at school age, the bus was picking up between 6 and 6.30. They said 6, and I argued them to 6.30 when there was still a chance I was going to send my kid on the bus. Because I felt like if I advocated enough, it didn't have to work that way. So we made it to 6.30. Now it's 5.30. Yeah. 5.30, because the high schoolers who live out here, the ones who aren't homeschooled, are taking the bus still. And that's when they're getting on the bus. There's I, Here there's about six of them mm-hmm. who are transported this way so that's still a really long day high schooler you might argue as long as he can get his work done there and back and has the wireless on his phone to get his Khan academy or whatever it is that they're doing it's maybe not horrible but if you have an appointment to get your braces dealt with or you throw up at school and you're told pick up immediately so from the beginning everyone agreed this isn't ideal for kids but the answer was so don't live there dummy Mm -hmm. right come on that's not our problem what the heck are you living on the northern outer banks for move to dare county they've got this covered in my case because i because the job i have mandates me living on site here at the lighthouse i didn't have that option i either needed to get a new job and the outer banks like the early 1900s is not replete with full-time salaried positions with benefits, right? There are still, even back back then, it was you could work for the post office, the life-saving station, the lighthouse. And I'm forgetting one, uh, the telegraph offices. But there's very few things that'll employ you year-round on a beach. You can fish, but nobody's going to pay you to do it. You can hunt, but only in season. So 
it wasn't, hey, Megan, find a new job on the Outer Banks. For me, it was quit and move or stay here and make change. Mm-hmm. I figure I work at a beautiful lighthouse. I love my job. <laughs> my kids, I moved here from living in a condo over a parking lot. And I thought, well, I think we're going to stay here and, make, and, and fight for this. So that's how we, Sylvia Wolf and I, decided we're going to need a school in Kerala. And so the year that your board got together was... 2008? 2008. I'm guessing. When did we open? 2012. We applied in 2010. The year, the not the fiscal year, the calendar year of 2008 is the year we started talking. Where Sylvia and I said, we don't know what... It wasn't we need a charter school. It was we need a school. Mm -hmm. How and who can accommodate us on this journey? So we said we can't do it alone. Let's find some educators, retired educators we know in town, and see what we can come up with. So we started meeting and said, we're going to do this. We're going to start a school. We just don't know how. So we thought we could do a religious school. But we just weren't sure our chapel, our very tiny chapel, was, and it's not, affiliated with a big enough religious institution to support a school. So then we thought private school... But then again, then we've isolated, we've double isolated the people who can't afford $8,000 minimum tuition. So we couldn't go private. So we talked to the superintendent of schools who said, I would love to build you a school, provide me with 70 kids. But we had this conundrum. If we don't have a school, we don't have kids because everyone will keep moving, right? So if you build a school, we promise we'll get you kids. And we have, I mean, we've gone from 16 kids our first year to 32 kids with a waiting list of anywhere from 14 to 22 kids, right? Which can't all be explained by people not moving. Some of it is that we've become a phenomenon. Now we have a school in the world's most beautiful town of the beach. Uh, but we knew you couldn't provide kids to the superintendent for a public school without a school. So we argued to him that we should, that he should create a substation school, which is essentially let Jarvisburg Elementary School principal be our principal. We'll find the property for you. You pay the rent. You do the teacher, but the teacher, what's the word I'm looking for? Evaluation. Sure. But these teachers are going to have to work on a different model than your traditional school model. Essentially like a college does where they have satellite campuses. Satellite. That's the word I'm looking for. Exactly. Um, But you know, any way that they trained their teacher was going to have to be... Di- we weren't even going to mandate we need a project-based learning school. We wanted some teachers who could teach mixed-grade schooling, mm-hmm. which is a hot topic still in Currituck County. Somebody is now on our school board because he was furious that his kid was on a K-1 mixed school. Whereas we were begging for, you know, obviously with 16 kids, well, we thought maybe our first year we could find 22. But with that few number of kids... We knew it was going to have to mix grade. You're not going to hire eight teachers, seven teachers. We were K through six at the time. You're not going to hire seven teachers, even though every year we've been open, we've had one kid in every grade. So obviously, mixed grade. He said no. And then he quit the next year. His, he had one foot out the door anyway. So the next, by the time the next superintendent came along, we had already thought charter is our only opportunity. And she was completely supportive. She said, do it. She was a pro-charter school person in her own way. Anyway, she thought the competition that it provides is good for public schools anyway, Um, which was lucky because we actually needed her to write a letter of endorsement for us, which she happily did. 
Then, of course, Kurtak County fired her soon after that. She was wonderful. <laughs> Megan Doyle, we still love you. Um, so, so now we've got... We've got... We think there's a demand for kids. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for, for a school out here. There are kids, and we think there's going to be more kids if there's a school. Exactly. Where did you find to house these kids starting at only 16 in their first year? You mean a facility or where in town were they going to live? Oh, okay. So we had already had a woman in town on our board, not thinking that she would have land or property for us, just that she was a wonderful woman who really was involved in making sure Kerala was developed in a way that felt right for the history of the town and authentic in a way that just going for big development wasn't for this town so we knew she cared for the humanity and the even the the sense of place she really cared to make sure that as Kerala develops and developed there was a sense of place she's responsible for a garden in the middle of our little village she had just a lot of things without being in it that was not true she had been a teacher maybe that's how we happened upon her she years prior I think taught actually at Kitty Hawken Elementary School Maybe that's how we decided to invite her onto our board, and she agreed. But then when, and they were so crazy, the Office of Charter Schools at that time had something called a, I'm going to forget the name, a quick turnaround, a a fast track. Mm -hmm. They had something called a fast track where they, now I'm getting ahead of myself, because we applied once and were turned down, right? There was a cap on charter schools at 100. There were already 99 charter schools when we applied. And we were, I can't remember, 17 of us applied for that one spot. And they gave it to a school with a million dollars already in the bank. It was a joint effort between a church and UNC, if I'm remembering this correctly. And they gave them the charter. And they never opened. So the next, well, the next year passed, they removed the cap on charter schools. Plus that spot was still open. We had, I think, $1,700 in the bank. There was no fee to apply at that point. Now... It's like a wet. It's like an engagement ring. Do you, like, do you have any money? We need to know before you apply. We're not looking for some shabby old people. But we were the shabby old people. We had, I swear, it was seventeen hundred dollars in the bank, and no facility at the time. We did not have a building in mind. We had Megan, who knows how to put an application together and dot her eyes. And you're in a place where real estate oh, is per square foot is ridiculous. Right. That's why. Not that your podcast listeners can see this, but we live in a place where if you buy a small lot, you develop every every possible inch of it, and you make sure it's three feet tall. Excuse me, three stories, three stories tall. tall. <laughs> Definitely not three feet tall. Three stories tall because you have to maximize the number of people who will rent that house, who will pay your top dollar because your season is short and your property was expensive. So we did. We went around and spoke to all these renters and said, hey, don't, you know, we'll be a nonprofit. Actually, we were already a nonprofit. We had done our 1023 with the IRS already. Um, Don't you want to make a donation? No, we don't. We'll cut it down to $2,200 a month. We were like, holy cow. We have so few kids. We need like one room, people. $2,200 a month is more than, we don't even have one month's rent. (laughs) Um, So... Sharon Twitty, who was on our board, owned the little schoolhouse in town, but she had the Wild Horse Museum in it, and she had worked, she herself had worked very hard with the designer to get the interior of the schoolhouse 
looking like a museum, hands-on, done really a great job with the interior. And their lease was up and she said, actually, I'm going to buy the building next door and I'll lease that to you and I'm going to give the schoolhouse to the kids. That wasn't necessarily a great way to get along with neighbors. That was our first step into what we want doesn't make everybody happy. Um, but that has smoothed out now. Now they have a building right next door to us and we're going on a field trip to see their horses next week. And that, But for initially that was people who thought, I'm a community volunteer and wow, maybe you people are the kind of people who kick other nonprofits out of their facility. Mm -hmm. That was our first bump in the road of community relations. Um, so your building was formerly the Horse Museum? It was. So the story of the schoolhouse is that it was built by the lighthouse keepers or for the children of the lighthouse keepers and the life-saving station kids. It exists as a school until the late 50s when it is eventually sold as a residence. And we know that a family, at least one family, owns it and comes here and spends summers at the beach, like has a privy, paints it red, paints all the pine trees that are in our yard now, which drive me crazy. But she told us the story. This woman came and told us the story of how she got them for free and she remembers planting them. So it was a summer domicile for a while. Then it becomes a real estate office. And then Twitty Realty buys it and uses it as their real estate office. And then they convert it to the Wild Horse Museum. But it made the most sense if you have a schoolhouse and you're on the board of a school to say, let's find a way to let the schoolhouse be. It would have just made very little sense for Sharon to have bought the house next door and put the school in it or offered it to us for rent to put the school in it when there was a schoolhouse next door. It might have just been too confusing. It just didn't make a lot of, like, smell test common sense. So that's how we ended up in the schoolhouse. And it has, I can tell you, in 1910, the committee asked for another room for their schoolhouse. And in 1911, money is appropriated for a second room. So it's originally a one-room schoolhouse. But not too long into its career as a schoolhouse, it becomes a two-room schoolhouse as it is today. So we started off K through six in just two rooms with just two teachers and lots of community volunteers, lots and lots of parents teaching PE, ex-librarians bringing us to library. And to this day, that system continues that a lot of our specials are taught by community volunteers. We have a stamp collector an avid lover of stamp collector, at which point all the adults were like, ooh, I don't know if that's going to keep the kids' interest very long. The kids adore it. What turned into from a 20-minute, once one-time presentation, stamp collecting and project-based learning go so hand-in-hand. Hand hand. Megan, I think that one of the more interesting parts of the story of this school is that there are... You know, there there are office of charter schools or state board of education rules that say that you can you have to have X amount of students to open. Sixty five. Sixty five. Yeah. I'm sure if it's still sixty five since oh. two thousand twelve, or if it's changed a little bit. Um, since what? What year? Two thousand twelve. You think they changed it? Two thousand twelve being the first year uh, that you guys opened. Right? Yeah. No, but we applied asking for an exemption to that rule, right. and there were a variety of reasons you could ask for the exemption, and ours was geographic isolation. Sure. But in our application, our cover letter says, please view this application with an exemption to this yeah. rule. Like, we called it out so they wouldn't think we didn't know. 
but it was 65 that right. year. Right, and so they, that's, I'm sure that part of that rule is so that you can, they can be sure that what you're going to have is an economically viable school. Oh, that was their biggest worry. Joel right. Medley was freaking out. I'm sure. <laughs> but what I've already heard you say is that you had a lot of things, a lot of factors help you to be a viable school at 16 kids and now at 32 kids. You have a great facility deal that you've yeah. worked out with your community. You have people who are willing to come work at your school, volunteer at your school, yeah. to add to the experience for kids. And to the mental health of teachers. Sure. Right? A little bit of planning time for teachers. <laughs> You're willing to have mixed grade classes. And we'll talk about some of the things you do to mix your grades in a, in a few minutes. And we don't pay a director, right? Okay. Ding, so ding, what ding. are the other things that you feel like... Ha- are helping you to be a viable school. At well, at the end of every year, we've had about $50,000 that we were able to save. But you think about it, if we were paying a principal who was doing nothing but principaling, then we would be running, we would not be in the black mm-hmm. as we are now. And we do think that one day, so our board, we contract out with a testing coordinator, mandatorily. That is a lot of hard detail accountability work that you've got to have someone on. It can't be a volunteer board member who's like, oh, make sure this happens. No, you have to travel once a month for hours to get to those meetings. At least we do. If we were nearby, we wouldn't. But being geographically isolated, we have to contract that out. We have to make sure we do teacher evaluation work. Um, we do that within the board, right? So we originally contracted that out. But... To have someone charge us $7,000 and show up three times a year and dot what we thought were... He just... He was getting us through the system so the state was happy with us. Sure. We weren't necessarily happy. We we didn't know enough to communicate to him, to mandate how often. and So that didn't work for us. We have enough North Carolina certified ex-teachers now on our board who really help us make sure that our teachers are growing as we think they should, according to the state criteria, but also to our own. So we take care of that. And then I take on anything else that needs to... No, Sylvia works with Acadia. So we do have a contract with Acadia for all our financial mm-hmm. and student management needs. So Power School, they train us on. We report to them. They do a lot of our... So if I'm going to write um, the IDEA grant, so I do all our grant writing, I'll call Acadia and say, what number? Give me these numbers. And that is so helpful. Mm-hmm. To me, that they understand all of those systems. Bud, which changed its name to a different financial. If you get federal grants, you got to enter into what was the Bud Bass. Maybe it's a bat. They really helped me not have to know all of those details, the PRC numbers, that sort of thing. That's worth the money we pay them per student. They also gave us a good deal because we're so small. Otherwise, they had a minimum amount, which we could not have paid. But we said, look, we're unique. Can we pay you per student instead? They agreed to that. It was eh, maybe not per student. They said, fine, but we'll give you a deal. That's very helpful. So it's essentially the operations of the school. Sylvia does anything that has to do with reporting health. So does anybody have asthma or epilepsy? She takes care of the health reporting and the civil rights reporting. She is our civil rights. We assigned that role to her. I do 
REAP grants. The REAP grant has given us $20,000 a year for the past three years. It's amazing that they just changed their process. So one of the parents at our school is a professional grant writer. So I'm getting her to help me through the federal system. Essentially what I do is delegate and smooth. Um, to which really we thank my bosses that they allow me to make sure my work at the lighthouse gets done. But when it's done, I have the time to go check the post office, to hand just little things that if you had a secretary and a principal would have to get done otherwise. The lottery, that our website stuff, I do. So essentially we've taken the principalship and divided it up. Because I'm a volunteer and I'm on our board, I can't take money for, for any of that work. That helps us out. Um, one day as we grow, if we grow into a high school also, I don't know how long I really, right? I told you I have a degree in social work and ancient history. I have learned so much having done this right now. I'm like, oh, you want to talk about per student allotments? Great. Well, you know, I've learned with my feet on the ground so much of what there is to do, but I'm still not qualified to do teacher evaluation. I don't want to take on testing. So we either at some point need to be big enough to pay someone to do all of that work, or we need to continue on this model for another decade of farming out volunteer operation work right. to neurotic detail-oriented people. <laughs> uh, what's crazy to me is that we visit schools that say that 200 kids is too few. 300 right. kids is too few. What would you say, I mean, given your experience here at 32 students now, <laughs> to a school who, who, is, who is fighting that struggle, given what you know about fighting the struggle this scale? You know, in some ways, if you have 300 students even to talk about, you're in a different world than we are, right? So it is possible that they're right. That's the only thing I've always kept in mind. A charter school is supposed to be replicatable. And I am not sure, unless you found yourself in Montana or, you know, there are so few really geographically isolated places that can be vibrant. And we are one of those, right? Presumably Alaska has some, Montana might, but we're, we exist now because of a tourist season and those people provide the fact that vacationers come explains why there's people here to provide work, which explains why there are people here at all. Otherwise there'd be a lighthouse keeper. <laughs> um, maybe even so the lighthouse survives because of vacationers paying money to support its preservation. Um, <clears throat> so to duplicate something like us on the outskirts of Charlotte, you would really have to have a community identity and a, I don't even want to try my raison d'être, whatever the French say, like the reason for being there, right? And some dedication by people for staying there. We exist because we're not really a school of choice. It's school send your kids to our school yeah. or put your kid on the bus for five hours. That's not, for most people, that's not a choice. Mm -hmm. um, so we're really doing what the public school would have done for us if we hadn't been geographically isolated. We wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have a charter school here because we wouldn't have the kids yeah. for it. Now, one of the things we discovered working together in the last few months is that something like a third of your students 
don't come here because of geographical reasons. They come here because of the environment you've created. That's right. What do you think, what do you guys do here that is special and different from, from other schools they might be district for? Without a doubt, on first glance, we, you can see that we're unique and small. And to many people that says individual attention for my child. And that is true. I know everybody. I know their birthdays. I'm not even at school usually, but I can tell you who has a birthday when. And just you, it, we become in both the good and the bad ways, a family, right? People, oh, we're family as if that were a good thing. That's not always a good thing, right? It also means I know everything about your weaknesses because everyone in school hangs out with everyone else. I have a seventh grader. He is. He doesn't blink an eyelid if a fourth grader says, do you want to come for a sleepover, right? We're all, there's no age, there's no even sense. My kids who have been raised in this town don't even understand the world I came from, which is my sister's friends wouldn't talk to me. They were cooler than I was. They were two years older, right? right? That was a, there was almost like a, <clears throat> what is it that fraternities get in trouble for, for hazing, right? There was a sense of older is better and you have to get hazed to get here. There's no concept of that here, which means that people who have very, very intelligent children who may not fit in in the normal traditional school system down south are like, my kid has no friends, but she's wicked smart. At which point I say, she will have friends at our school. Nobody doesn't have friends at our school. You need your friends up here. You need your people. You don't have the liberty to discriminate <laughs> against somebody else. You need your people. So... That, I think, people, upon seeing our size, get that it has to happen. Uh, so, <clears throat> there's that. Um, there's the just the, I think people feel the quaintness of it, which is my kid is on his device 100 hours a day, and the school gave him a one-to-one, -one and he gets issued his iPod, iPad, and they're not doing anything to manage his time on it and I can't stand it and he claims it's for school. We don't do that. You, we do have access to digital at school, but we are not a one-to-one -one school. I think that's what they call a one-to-one -one school. So we have had people approach us on that alone who are sort of over-digitized, who want their kids to be outside. You have to be outside. We have parents sign a waiver at the beginning of the school year says, we use this extended campus. What we consider an extended campus, we will walk down a road. There's no fence around our playground. Your children will be approached by vacationers and said, are you an actor? No, they're not actors, but there's only so much we can do to... Our kids are already isolated. We, we try to do the opposite of isolating our kids, right? And as a result, they are incredibly socialized kids. People, a friend of mine from Chapel Hill was like, you were worried, Megan, that your kids weren't going to turn out okay, but... They play soccer and they, one, my older kid is taking Chinese and that pressure that's on the whole rest of the world, even my friend moved to Russia 10 years ago, she's like, the education pressure is ridiculous. That, the high school that I went to, Jeff, it's a private high school outside of D.C., $42,000 a year to send your kid there. That's not for boarding. That's not for your food plan. That's how anxious we've become yeah. about education these days. So I think people say, Megan, your school is free. The kids can still be kids. Like, we used to have what was called a God. We still have a Gaga pit. And it was like, sorry for your listeners, it was like cocaine for children. They couldn't stop playing Gaga ball. You, no, you can't play Gaga. They wanted to play Gaga, which is like a gentler form of dodgeball. Everybody was in all the time. 
So that's great. They were getting exercise. They were outside. In some ways, they were contained in this little wooden structure. But then a teacher this year developed a fairy village, which is go dig in the pine needles and create from bark little wooden caves where fairies will live. Oh, and they have a barter system and a governing system. And, you know, people put together <clears throat> curriculum in order to recreate a fairy village, which is kids working and playing together, but creating order and being outside in nature. But kids are going to do that naturally if you give them a chance. However, if you're on a legislated, excuse me, like litigated playground, there's maybe not the opportunity to do that because there's wood chips, which you will not choke on, and soft <laughs> things, which you will not break an arm on. At a certain depth. At a certain depth, right? Like we that. don't, we haven't, thank goodness, because of our size, mm -hmm. run into that. When you have 300 kids, however, you do get into that, which sure. is... We need someone to check in all of the people who walk into the school system. And we need a system of getting kids in and out of hallways. We don't have hallways. We know everybody who can pick up your kid because we know everyone in your life. So there is definitely a factor of scale that we haven't crossed mm -hmm. to our advantage, right? Um, of course, if a bridge comes or we continue with this phenomenon, which is people want to come to our school for the sake of the school... And then say, but why aren't you bigger? Because you've got such a big waiting list now. Mm -hmm. Then, or people in this town aren't getting in. That's, of course, my end of day issue is we started the school so kids did not have to take the bus. Now, anyone nearby can say, I don't want to put my kids in traditional school. I want to drive them for an hour to your school. At which point I shake my head and say, it's a free public school and you can come if you get a lottery. But... If it continues to the point that this town grows because people think we have a school and then they don't get in, we all have to grow to accommodate. But the lottery system holds us back from allowing our initial lottery or excuse me, our initial charter said Corolla kids have first priority. And we were shut down on that. Charter law says you cannot choose your kids. You cannot discriminate. So we don't. Um, and we love all our children, don't get me wrong, no matter where they come from. But we did have a kid whose parents live and work in this town who got into our school late last year. He moved from the Philippines to be with his mom, who's Filipina, who is working here. And we had a space for him last year. Or a space came open for him a month after he moved here. She was already putting him on the bus mm -hmm. to Kuratak. She said, I've just moved the poor kid here from the Philippines. He's had to adjust so much that I'm not going to yank him from the school system he's already in to get him into your school. So she had to re-enter the lottery this year, and he didn't get called in. He's about six kids down. So this is our first experience this next coming year with a kid who lives in our town who is forced to take the bus because our lottery system and our dream couldn't accommodate him. And that's on my conscience. Did you ever imagine that that was going to be a problem that you'd have to face? No. <laughs> Never, because we didn't have a lottery for our first yeah. three years. We had plenty of room. We would take anybody from anywhere as long as they were North Carolina qualified. Right. Um, so, no, this is new for us. And now you're going to have a podcast to make us even more popular. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I saw on my first visit here that I thought was really unique was 
the projects that you have developed that don't just bridge a grade, uh -huh. like sixth and seventh graders working together, but bridges the entire span of your school. Right. Could you talk about one such project that kids from kindergarten to seventh grade work together on? Yes, and I do feel like, and we're sending Sylvia to a project training. We've been at school for five years, and we've always just sort of, I mean, not, we haven't totally, what's the past tense of wing it? Winged it? Wung it? We haven't always wung it. I'm going to go for wung. Um, winged it? Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, because Sylvia had studied this as part of her education degree. But since that point, we've really said, let's find a way. The $42,000 high school I mm -hmm. went to has this motto, which is the world's best motto, which is find a way or make one, which Hannibal apparently said while crossing the Alps with his elephants. But it is a motto. I'm a big believer. We don't have a motto for our school, but it's our unofficial motto here as well, because all of the graduates of my high school carry on for life. Mm -hmm which is, we're going to find a way. Sylvia translates it into her own motto, which is, we got this. Um, but we've really come, in, we've checked out so many different ways to do projects. Take them home, your individual project. Everybody do the same project, but it'll be a wax museum project. And we've really moved toward group, multi-grade project work. We have had a theme this year, and we think we're going to keep it because it's so amazing, of navigation. There are so many. We were sure we were going to build a boat this year. <laughs> because Sylvia's a dreamer, okay? I'm a pragmatist. She says the sky, I say, heck no, settle down. And we find some space in between. Um, but, well, point about navigation was there's, we just haven't even begun to to find the edges of cool multi-school navigation projects. The one that the, they just pulled off is a project that everybody helped contribute. We got a, a nice donation from a school, excuse me, from a church down south, Emmanuel Lutheran, thanks for that, where they gave us a $150 gift card to Lowe's. And so someone found a way that you could make a planetarium, which is where you get all of this plastic and you find a way to tape it together and then put a fan on one side of it so that it's airtight except for where you attach a window fan, like a box fan they're called. One silly plastic little white box fan. You attach that in, you turn it on, and it inflates the planetarium that you made. Then every group got to choose their own... Really, Megan? I'm, I'm going to forget the word. Thank you, constellation. Then they had to learn the history or the mythology around the constellation. They had to be able to identify where it was. They had to make a 3D model. So you had the hands-on component uh, where they as a group had to decide how to make it. So they made things out of candy or jewelry to make their constellation in mini size. And it had to, the math side of it is you had to scale it accurately. Uh, and then once that happened, they went and poked holes in their black plastic planetarium so when you walked in in the daytime, and it was tall enough for adults to stand in, you would see the stars. Then they all had to write plays about their Greek or the Roman mythology around that. And then they performed it together, and we Facebook actually live videoed it. Parents came for it, so we had community presentation part of it. We had the stamp, you know, we made sure we worked other factors into it but there was the writing there was the public performing there was the drama 
And it was maybe our most successful group multi-grade, multi-sensory project to date. And we're only just moving on from there. Um, Sylvia's not going to stop till she has somehow <laughs> built boats. Whether it's one or many, I'm like, can't we build rafts? Nope, not good. Anyway, so we'll find a way. Um, but So we had a theme. We experience it in quarterly. We come up with a different presentation quarterly throughout the day. And presumably your listeners don't understand this yet is kids are grouped by ability. So we do have a first grader and fifth grade math, right? Because we hold the class at the same time. You go to where the right Mm -hmm. spot is for you. And then at some point we bring the school together for work. So specials in the afternoon, we spend a lot of time together in the afternoon we go to specials together next year. We may actually divide those into two as we get older because we're growing into an eighth grade next year. So kids won't have a specific art time next year. They'll have a media and a newspaper time. Specials will become a little more specialized as our kids get older, but they'll still work in groups. But it'll be the first time next year that we don't do whole school special activities. Um, but projects will will continue to be right. together, and we're looking possibly to hire a part-time teacher for next year who won't work Fridays. So that'll be a time where we've gotten sort of straight curriculum learning done and project work can come together. Right. So there's a lot, a lot that goes into building that atmosphere you talked about earlier of where your fourth grade and your seventh grade are going to be best friends. Yeah. That is well, no, not common anywhere else. It's not work. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't... In some ways, it wasn't intentional. It was a byproduct of the necessity, which I'm sure is the way it used to be, right? Until school, until really the school bus became a phenomenon in what, the 1950s. You had your little local school. Not to say everything about the 50s was, should be replicated. Um, but in that, or even education in America in the 50s. But in that one sense, I do think that age probably was less of a factor in who spent time with whom rather than this is a small school and I want to spend time with someone. When I go see my friends, they're always organizing play dates. We don't organize play dates. It's who's outside playing and I said be home for dinner and my kids aren't allowed to have phones. So it's often, oh my goodness, where are my kids? But because we have the privilege of being in a town that you really only come to if you're coming on vacation, we tend to know who's around. You know, we don't also, I don't. That's not to speak for all parents. People have different anxiety levels. But I know my kids are somewhere and they're coming back. Yeah, that's refreshing. That's yeah, refreshing it's hear. lucky. A place too. like that exists yeah. in the world yeah. still. As a big city person now myself. Right. Well, let's wrap up with one more question, if you don't mind. Because I, I think that my biggest takeaway after learning so much about this school is that all of those things you just talked about, you know, happened because of a focus of the community on giving this place something that it desperately needed. Yeah. Um, and I think in its own way, that's the story of most charter schools, right? That there is, that that because there's no choice, X is happening. Or, right. Or because... The nearest charter school teaches, you know, the nearest school teaches this way, and I know my kid, and it's not going to happen. I need something else. That 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 idea is from is where charter schools are born from. Yeah, really, or they should be. Right. So, 
if you were going to give advice to someone who just got approved for a new charter school... Which is a situation I'm in. The Waldorf Charter School in Raleigh is started by an old friend of mine. Yeah, I read their application. Oh, did you? Yes, Melissa is... I, I, guess, I don't know if she's the president of the board... Um, but she's a good. She and I used to work in a domestic violence nonprofit world together. World. We're Spanish. We're both Spanish speakers, so we <laughs> overlapped in that way. And she was a Waldorf person. And actually, I really think for charter school, Montessori and Waldorf are such an interesting overlap. Mm-hmm. Because why should only rich people be able to afford to that, yeah. awesome, different education options? Right, that are the non-traditional methods. Montessori doesn't work because rich able people say it works. Mon- Maria Montessori made Montessori work with street urchins, mm-hmm. right? Like there's, I, I really think the move toward Montessori people and Waldorf people toward charters and is great for humanity. Sure. Um, but I do think when I think about her in Raleigh, that's a different world, right? That has to be people who want, no, it's not a different world. That is, she has a mission can she find the people with the energy and the time to get that to take place in a world where it's less urgent, right? She could easily get the, you know, the shake off and be like, we already have a school. Whereas here we didn't, right? right? So I know she's up against harder work than I think I am because I think they are going to need are they going to need more people? I don't know. Are they going to be able to find the people who say, I have the time and energy to do this for free because it's important to me and my children, right? I think you have to take it away from the pure theoretical and get a little bit of selfish in there. This is important enough for me not only to make it happen, but to spend, and I have the privilege to give my time away in a way that that is worth it to me. Um, so that's on them to find those people for whom that mission is important enough. Um, yeah. Which I think you probably can do because do you want to pay for Waldorf or do you want it for free? You're going to pay for it one way or another. Time and effort or money. In my world, time and effort was a better... Was a better, investment. better invest. was the only investment. <laughs> the only thing I had to invest. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think having a mission that people can really believe in. It's not always easier. Okay, well, Megan, I really appreciate your time. I'm excited to share the story of the school with the world. And, and learning today that you are the keeper of the light uh, <laughs> makes a lot of sense given how you've drawn people to the school. So thank you for sharing. Thank you, William. Hey everyone, Jeff here again. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast this week. I encourage you to go back and listen to the first three episodes with Zach Perfit, Eric Sanchez, and Mark Tracy. And, you know, as sticking around this long and listening to the whole thing, the whole hour all the way through, we'd really like to uh, send you a a gift from us to you uh, to start off your new year. It's something I know you'll need. So uh, send me an email if you'd like to receive the gift. My email is jeff, G-E-O-F-F, at leaders-building-leaders.com. I look forward to working with you this year.